As an industrial water treater, you have to do so much. You have to know about so many things. Chemistry, physics, environmental, electrical, and the list goes on. But did you ever think that list should include cyber protection? Who's got time for that? Well, hackers have plenty of time to find your vulnerabilities and hold your valuable information hostage. 43% of all cyber attacks happen to small businesses. Small businesses are not prepared to defend against cyber attacks. The cyber threat protection experts at Reinert Consulting Group have been helping water treatment companies with strategies to protect their valuable data. Here's the thing about Reinert Consulting Group. They understand what water treatment companies need to defend against these attacks. From training to software, Reiner Consulting Group is your one-stop shop for protecting your valuable data. After all, where would you be without your data? Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash cyber to find out more. That's scalinguph2o.com forward slash cyber. Don't wait before it's too late. Welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. My name is Trace Blackmore, and Nation, I am so looking forward to bringing this episode to you. This is an episode where I'm going to give you an inside look of the Rising Tide Mastermind. And folks, I have to say, the Rising Tide Mastermind is something that is just so amazing. And if you haven't heard about it, it is a group of people within this industry where we get together and we make each other's lives better by helping each other. That's the simple definition. I know that sounds weird if you're not a member. And if you've never been a member of a mastermind, but the simple premise of a mastermind is how can we help each other through each other's experiences? How can we give each other a forum so we can get further faster while having more fun while we're doing it? That's what the mastermind is. Now, how we do it is probably different in each mastermind. And in the Rising Tide Mastermind, we definitely have a specific format that we follow and we will process issues together and we will get further with those issues than we could have on our own. Now, I know you have probably heard a guest that is a Rising Tide Mastermind member talk about this process, but how we do it is you bring an issue and now you give the issue to the group. The group is not allowed to give you any advice. And that is very different than what we experience in our day-to-day. -day. Normally you say, hey, I'm having this issue. And somebody immediately says, well, this is how you should solve it. Well, I'm sure what you have found is what we have found is a lot of times that person is off base or they don't understand all the things that you know about that issue and you've experienced about that issue or you've already done that thing. So you thank them for their advice, but you really don't get any further than before they gave it. Well, in the Rising Tide Mastermind, 
Once you give that issue to the group, we are only allowed to ask clarifying questions. And what that means is we have to ask questions not to lead you to what we want you to do, but to ask questions so we can see your issue through your lens. How have you experienced it? What have you done? Why is it an issue for you? What happens if you don't solve this? And now we're starting to understand you around your issue. Once we have a good grasp of how you are seeing the issue, we then shift over to advice. And that is when we ask the member that has the issue not to worry about responding, but simply to just relax and absorb all of the advice that they are getting ready to give. Because let's face it, in our day-to-day, we normally don't get good, concise feedback and forum that we trust each other. So with this, we just invite the member to take notes and listen to what all the other members have to say. And sometimes it's the best advice ever. Other times, maybe it is something that you've already done or you don't see that working. Whatever it is, you're going to take notes on it. And then uh, later, you can ask the members some questions about things. But then the group is going to ask you, what is the next step you're going to do to solve this issue? And then the group holds you accountable to get that done. Now, I know as I'm speaking and telling you all about this, there are some listeners out there that thinks that sounds horrible. And why would anybody ever join a group where they are going to have to do that? And I get it. That means this group is not for you. But folks, we've been doing this for over four years, and it has been amazing to see what people have accomplished within the Rising Tide Mastermind because of this format and how people have helped each other and how where somebody gives an issue and they have no idea how to start. And by the time the call is done, they're on step eight and people are helping them get there. It is a fantastic process, and it's one of the things that we do within the Rising Tide Mastermind. Another thing that we do is we read books, and I will tell you, I have been a member of groups before where we read a book a month, and yay, I could check the box that I read 12 books within a year, but we did nothing with them, and that was one of my pet peeves. It's great to read a book, but if I'm not going to do something with that book, I've got other things that I need to do. So when we started the Rising Tide Mastermind, we said it was not about the quantity of books, it was about the quality of the books. So some of the Mastermind members know this, others may not, but I normally read five to six books before I decide on what our next book is. So That's an easy way that I make sure that I'm keeping up with my reading list. And that's one of the things that I really try to hold myself accountable with is that I'm reading a lot because that's how I get new information to bring to the groups, but also make my life better. 
So about every five or six books that I read is a good book for the Rising Tide Mastermind. And we read about a book a quarter, and then we meet within the group to discuss the book to make sure we're getting the most out of those books. But then we hold each other accountable to do at least one thing that we learned from that book. And sometimes we will read a book that sets us up to do something for a particular assignment. Now, you might have heard us talk about the live event with some of the guests that are Mastermind members. Well, the last book that we had read before the most recent live event was called TED Talks by Chris Anderson, who's the CEO of TED. Now, most people in our audience have probably seen a TED Talk before. If you had not, go to any browser and type in TED, and you will be amazed at all of the content that you can find on just about any topic. And there's a very specific format that you have to do in order to do a TED Talk. So the book that we read by Chris Anderson called TED Talks taught us that format. Now, it did it by bringing up to light certain TED Talks that he would talk about and why they were successful or what was the background story with that. And then we used that to form our own TED Talks. That was the assignment. We read the book, and then we were all going to give a TED Talk at the live event. Now, the live event, everybody comes here to Atlanta, and then we just have an amazing time. We have all sorts of things that we have planned, like this activity with the TED Talk. We also have an event together. Uh, we went to Top Golf. For those of you that don't know, that's kind of a game where you're at a driving range, and we just had a tremendous time with that. But this is all about fellowship, getting to know your fellow members better, and making your whole experience better. So everybody gets to Atlanta and they know the second day of the live event, that's what we're doing. We're doing TED Talks. And I started out with my TED Talk. And if you can envision where we were, we were in a fairly large conference room and everybody was seated around their groups. Now we have about 70 members within the Rising Tide Mastermind, about 10 members in each group. So each group had their own table that they were sitting around. And then right in the middle of the room, I got a red carpet dot, just like they have at TED. And in the very beginning of our second day meeting, I said good morning to the group, and I gave my TED Talk. So if you will, imagine me standing on the red dot giving this TED Talk. Anxiousness, apprehensiveness, uneasiness, butterflies in your stomach, or maybe just plain nervous. Whatever you call it, we all know the feeling. The feeling you get when you are about to do something new. The feeling that lets you know you are about to do something that makes you uncomfortable. If we turn to the dictionary to define the word uncomfortable, we read causing or feeling slight pain or physical discomfort. 
This definition is perfect if we are talking about exercise. We want to get in better shape. We start a new exercise program. We are sore the next day. But we push through the pain and soon we are able to lift more weight, run faster, swim longer. Our dictionary definition works fine to describe an athlete straining a muscle. But how well does it apply to someone standing in front of an audience giving a TED Talk? Of all of the terms that I used earlier, I like butterflies in your stomach the best. It's a very descriptive term, but in case you were wondering, we don't actually have butterflies in our stomachs. The medical term is called hyperstimulation. This feeling was a key instinct for our ancestors when they were hunting, gathering, and learning how to make fire. Back then, if you heard a stick break in the night, it very well could have been an animal coming to eat you for dinner. Butterflies in our ancestors' stomachs help them stay alive. So what really happens in the body when we get butterflies in our stomach? Our blood vessels constrict, sending more blood to the brain to increase our alertness. Our bodies produce more adrenaline, giving us increasing strength, allowing us to accomplish near-impossible tasks. Our heart rate increases, enhancing our performance by bringing more oxygen to our muscles, giving us quicker reaction times. All of this is designed to keep us alive. Now, I don't know about you, but I have no anticipation of a bear coming up on stage and eating me while I give this TED Talk. We as a society have tamed the natural world to make it safe, for the most part. But why do we still have this feeling of butterflies in our stomach? To talk about why, I'd like to refer to one of my favorite books, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. If you haven't read the book, it's about seven habits that highly effective people do. Sometimes the author just nails the title. In Habit 1, Be Proactive, the author, Stephen Covey, describes what being proactive looks like. He draws a circle inside of a second circle. He names the inside circle the circle of influence. He then names the outside circle the circle of concern. As we can envision, the outside circle of concern is far bigger than the inside circle of influence. This represents that there are a lot more things that concern us than we have actual influence over. He explains the more we work on the inside circle, the bigger it becomes, thereby pushing the edges of the circle of influence into the space where the circle of concern used to occupy giving us influence over more things. I call the edge of the circle of influence the butterfly line. And no, you will not find that in the book. The butterfly line is the internal indicator you feel when you are about to grow. I am experiencing butterflies in my stomach right now. When we get this feeling, we have three choices, fight, flight, or freeze. If I chose flight, there would be no one standing on this red carpet as I quickly run out that door. If I chose freeze, all of us would feel very uncomfortable as we silently stare at each other. But I don't choose those. I choose to push through. I choose to fight. 
because I know that internal indicator that I feel is the butterfly line. And after I push through the pain, I will grow. I will gain experience. I will gain skill. I will have more control over the things I didn't before. I am working right on the butterfly line. As we get older and collect more experiences, it gets harder and harder for butterflies to inhabit our stomachs. It is my hope that you seek out that feeling. It is my hope that you get excited when you feel it. It is my hope that you challenge yourself to find activities that force you to grow. Because on the other side of that feeling, you will have more influence over things that concern you. So the next time you get butterflies in your stomach, embrace it, celebrate it. The work you are about to do is worth the pain. The work is focused right on the butterfly line. That is, unless you are in Alaska during bear mating season. Thank you. Nation, I am going to give you some behind the scenes information about that TED Talk. So a lot of members of the Rising Tide Mastermind don't even know this, but weeks before the live event, I had a TED Talk that was written and practiced that I was going to present. And then a week before the live event, a member that you were going to hear from, James Courtney, he challenged me with making my TED Talk more inspiring to all of the people that were about to give their TED Talks. And at first, I didn't want to take the effort to rewrite it, but I knew he was right. And I, deci- I, I didn't decide, I knew that there were a lot of people that were apprehensive about giving their TED Talk. This might have been the first time they have ever publicly spoken or the first time in a long time. And folks, the, the simple truth is we do things in the Rising Tide Mastermind that other people just don't do. And we do that so we can push ourselves to be better each and every time that we engage with each other. So I knew that this was a lofty assignment and there were people there that were so excited and they loved it. And then there were other people that were very apprehensive. So James encouraged me to talk with them as I did on a previous mastermind call. In fact, he said, what you just said on this mastermind call, I think you need to turn into a TED Talk. Well, I took that not only as great advice, but also a personal challenge. Could I do a TED Talk and do it with a, uh, within the boundaries that we learned within the book TED by Chris Anderson, or TED Talks by Chris Anderson? And could I get that practiced and memorized and have gestures and all the things that we needed to do within this TED Talk within a couple of days? So you heard what I gave, and I hoped that that inspired people to engage in what they were getting ready to do. 
Now, I will tell you, I had numerous members that came up and said, thank you so much for giving that talk. That's what I needed to hear. I had one member come up to me with tears in her eyes and said that that was exactly what she needed to hear. And some of the imagery that I used really connected with her. So I am sure glad that I took that advice because I think that was the talk that I needed to deliver at that specific time. Now with that, after I said goodbye off the stage, Everybody dismissed in their individual groups. Now, within the Rising Tide Mastermind, we have seven groups, roughly about 10 members in each group, and each member gave their individual TED Talks to their groups. And we had information on how we suggested they give feedback. So that way there was a format for feedback so everybody got the most out of it. Something you should also know is we have several members within the Rising Tide Mastermind that are aspiring to get on the real TED stage themselves. We're going to have an opportunity for you to fill out a form after you listen to all of these TED Talks so you can help these members actually get on the TED platform. You can go to our show notes page and we're going to have all of that information almost all filled out so you can send that to TED. But anyway, we're now back in the individual rooms where they're giving their individual TED Talks. They're giving their critiques to the members that just finished their TED Talks. And then once everybody went, they then chose one member from each group to represent their group. And that's what you are getting ready to hear right now. Folks, I am so proud of these people, and I know you are going to enjoy this. So first up is the person that challenged me to rewrite my TED Talk. Here is James Courtney. So we all know the old saying, you give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Teach every man to fish and... That's right, you wipe fish clean off the face of the earth. Uh, the problem, obviously, is that it's not sustainable to have every individual acting in their own interest around a depletable common resource. Now, I don't think anybody here actually has to fish for their dinner every night, but unfortunately, it turns out you don't need every man fishing to achieve the same results. Uh, with the advances in commercial fishing, equipment, a relative handful of commercial fishermen have been able to create what uh, have been called by scientists oceanic deserts, vast swaths of ocean with no life to it. If that sounds hyperbolic, it's not. Uh, the UN Commission on Trade and Development uh, has estimated that 90% of all marine fish are either over harvested or are at the absolute limit. So we're harvesting exactly as much as can be sustained or we're literally driving them closer to extinction. And I'm sure by now you're wondering like, well, what can I do? I'm just an individual consumer. Uh, what can we do to 
provide a sustainable source for the future. And if the commercial fishing industry is so bad for the environment, what if the future of seafood is on land? Now, I was thinking that one, but if anybody else was thinking that, that's a great question. The answer, as it turns out, is maybe. It depends. So even if you're one of those people who hates seafood, you think, I'm not contributing to the problem, it's important to understand how important seafood is to feeding the world. We currently harvest over 200 million tons of fish annually to feed a population which has exploded in the last 50 years. It's, it's more than doubled. We're up over 8 billion people. And in that same time, the fish consumed per person has also doubled, so we're quadrupled the amount of seafood that we're harvesting on an annual basis. Interestingly, in spite of all of that overfishing, the amount of fish we actually pull out of the ocean actually plateaued back in about 1988 at 90 million tons annually. So for those of you doing the math, 200 minus 90 leaves 110. So where's all this other fish coming from? Aquaculture, fish farming. Cool, uh, fish farms, we can raise our own fish. We can supply the market with a product that we can grow as much of it as we need. We can take the pressure off the wild environment and it's totally sustainable, right? Not necessarily, no. Turns out commercial aquaculture has all the potential to be just as destructive to the environment as commercial fishing, if done with the same neglect and lack of care for the impact that it has on the environment, getting a product to the table. What does it look like? Imagine a 100-foot-wide circular cage filled with thousands of fish. Now imagine a few dozen of those sitting off the coastline and a few thousand fish occupying a space that normally hosts a uh, hundred. All that fish poop that you're exporting uh, throws the ecosystem way out of whack. It's not sustainable. And if you don't constantly feed those fish medications, you've got a situation that's ripe for disease. So now not only are you exporting your fish poop to the environment, you're potentially sending disease. It's not sustainable. Now you could try to mitigate that by either reducing the number of fish in those cages or spreading them farther apart. But again, not scalable, not sustainable. And of course, before you even get to fish poop, there's the question of what do you feed the fish? I'll give you one guess what big fish eat. Smaller fish. So we're farming big fish because we fished them out of the environment. So now we're catching smaller fish to feed the big fish. So now we're running the environment out of big fish and small fish, not sustainable. Okay, well, you know, that great question you guys had about bringing it on land, what about that? Well, that does solve some of the problems, but does also come with a few of its own. So instead of the cages, imagine you've got a dozen football field-sized ponds all right, now you're not automatically sending that fish poop to the environment, but that land that you just cleared to create those ponds, what was there before? Was it environmentally sensitive? Uh, in the case of shrimp farms in places like Vietnam and Thailand, a lot of times that ends up being mangrove forests, which are crucial to stabilizing the shoreline and their critical habitat for 
a lot of the fish that end up getting fed to the shrimp. So again, not sustainable. And yeah, we're not necessarily immediately sending the poop to the streams and the rivers, but unless there's regulations saying that you have to clean that up before you send it out, the cheapest option is obvious and also not sustainable. So this is where I get to do my infomercial impression. Uh, there's gotta be a better way. Introducing the recirculating aquaculture system. Using the foremost technology in wastewater treatment design and water quality monitoring, you can now grow sustainable, healthy fish from the comfort of your own warehouse. Call now and we'll increase the sustainability of your warehouse by including hydroponics to turn all that nasty fish poop into marketable produce. It's aquaculture, it's hydroponics, it's aquaponics. Yeah. So, thank you. So, you know, before everyone whips out their wallets, this is a, a great system, but unfortunately, the, no matter how efficient your system is, there's no getting around the fact that not all fish are created equal. So, anything that we are feeding other fish has its complications, and some of the most popular fish that we eat are predators. So think tuna, salmon, all top of the food chain, all eating other fish in order to grow to market size. There are scientists working on ways to feed them a vegetarian diet to make them more sustainable, but there are fish already out there that are already vegetarian, uh, and you've probably had it before. Who here hasn't tried tilapia? Now, I'm not saying I've seen tilapia at any sushi restaurants, but I've also never been to a grocery store that hasn't carried tilapia. And because of their vegetarian diet and because of the unique ways that they grow, they are actually very well suited to recirculating aquaculture systems and they're very sustainable to grow and to feed a growing world population. So I'm not here asking you to stop eating salmon or tuna or anything else that tastes good. I love sushi too. I just hope that after today, you think a little bit more the next time you sit down to dinner and you consider where the food came from, what it took to get there, and the impact that it had along the way. And if you do decide to make a change, don't do it for some vague egalitarian notion like sustainability. Do it because you care. For the people in this room, the people outside this room, and the people who haven't yet come into this world. Thank you. Nation, that was James Courtney, and James really does want to make it to the TED stage. So if you can go to scalinguph2o.com, on our show notes page, we're going to have information so you can fill out that form and help James get to the TED platform. Next up is somebody that I work with every single day. Her name is Mindy Petrosi, and she has helped me so much with so many things within our office here and also in life. And she's going to share some information about what she has learned about raising her son. SP 
parents, we want the best for our children. We want them to have good grades, part of clubs, sports, friends, community. But there's social media out there today. They have to have the most likes, know the new slangs of what sus is, cringe, cap. Look them up, they are stupid. <laughs> but that's a lot of pressure for the kids to live up to, this ideal highlight reel of somebody else's life. Now add in a mental learning disability. The invisible diagnosis our kids have to deal with, ADHD, autism, dyslexia. They're asked to fit into a mold they cannot fit into just yet. So I say this because my son, at four years old, was told he was different. I was told that he parallel played with kids. I'm like, what's parallel playing? Here's my child playing. Here's the group of kids. He thinks he's involved. He's not. He's playing next to him by himself, isolated. He couldn't communicate as well as other children. So for the next two years, we had him diagnosed, evaluated by schools and doctors to find out what can we do to best help him. He's ADHD and autistic, high-functioning autistic. So okay. Went to school with other kids his age, and his teacher would use a color chart. So if you're in blue and green, you were having a great day. The kids around you knew you were having a great day. But if you were orange, yellow, or red, you were behaving badly, you were not on the good list, and everybody knew it. My son's teacher told the him he would never be in the upper colors because he couldn't sit still, couldn't keep attention, was hyper-focused. He's ADHD. Of course he can't do that. You're judging him and shaming him based off of a school culture that was implemented not for him. He's uniquely different. He's fabulously uniquely different. And there's so many things about him that kids don't embrace. They don't want to play with the kid who's always getting in trouble. He's not making friends as easily as he thinks he is. He thinks he has these friends and he doesn't. I understand that he and I have been talking about ADHD since he was four. He knows about it. But what if we can change the perspective and the lens that the schools teach? In school, my son found a book called Dog Man by David Pilkey. David Pilkey fabulously has ADHD. He has a character in his book, ADHD. It's a robot in there. My son can relate to him. He's read this series over and over and over and buys the first book every year it comes out. Everyone knows Big Bang Theory? Sheldon Cooper? That's my kid. My kid is just like him. So when we see little girls, little boys looking at the big screen saying, that person looks just like me, these characters are just like my son. And I know it, and I can feel it, and I'm so glad the culture is showing people kids think differently. Because this is not a high school issue. This is not a grown-up issue. This is something we can cultivate at a young age and teach about mental health. Teach kids that it's okay to have feelings, to be confident in the needs that you have. To say, I am overwhelmed, I can't handle this situation. In school, my son will tell them, I'm too sensitive to his friends when they take the red crayon, because that's his favorite color. When he's overwhelmed and he's ready to break down, he tells the teacher, I can't stop. I don't know why. You have to help me. They then come up with plans. They give him break cards. He can get a five-minute break three times a day to regulate his emotions, because his emotions are so dysregulated, he can no longer function in that classroom. So his school and I have worked very closely to get these things in place. But what if we teach the kids as well, the kids who aren't like my family, 
the kids who are different because they're normal and my son is atypical. Why should parents care? Because one in five kids have a mental learning disability. They're dyslexic, they're ADHD, they're high-function autism, and they're expected to function in a school that is not built for them. This is a mold that is set to conformity. Kids can understand it. At a young age, they are sponges. They absorb everything. So to teach them simple practices of, hey, not this one kid needs a five-minute break. Everyone, twice a day, is going to get a five-minute break. We're just going to sit in peace. We're going to meditate. We're going to use words of affirmation. And now everyone's doing it. When they see their friend having trouble, they're going to say, I hear you. I see you need a minute. I see you're struggling. What's up? How can I help you? Because that's the language in my house. My normal is different. I strive every day to learn something new about ADHD and autism. I strive to make it better for my son so when he has needs, he can speak to other people. So as parents, we need to have mental health conversations with our young children, with our grandchildren. So if they're ever in a situation that they can't control themselves, they get it, they understand what they're feeling, they know what to do. But better if they see somebody else having trouble, they can help that person get through emotional regulation to find their calm once more. So just take a minute, when you see a child throwing a fit in a store, it's not because he didn't get a candy bar. It's not because his parents is not disciplining them. It's because that kid was at the doctor's, the post office, the grocery store, and they are overwhelmed and overstimulated. They need a break. And it's okay for us to all step back and take a break. Thank you. Scaling Up Nation, after Mindy left the stage, she came over to me and she said that she couldn't look at me because I was smiling so hard that she would just laugh. And I was just so so proud of all these people as they were going up on stage and delivering their TED Talks. But she told me that she could not look at me. She had to move her gaze someplace else to somebody else every time that she was scanning the room. So Mindy, sorry about that. I was just so gosh darn proud of what you put together because uh, Mindy shared with me. She was not looking forward to giving this TED Talk, but she did such an amazing job. And we will have the information on our show notes page if you see fit to nominate Mindy to the TED stage. Next up is Jill Cavano. And Jill shares an experience here that I know you are going to enjoy. So my question for you today is, do you have a bucket list? And if you do, have you started on it? When I was younger growing up, we lived in a small town in New Jersey, and I remember always taking walks with my mom. And I guess I'm dating myself, so this was the 70s, so there were still 1960s cars around. So we were walking down the street going to the candy store, because I must have done something good, and I was promised a pack of butter rum lifesavers. So we're walking to the candy store, and my mom stops, and she says, Jill, look. She's like, that right there is the coolest car that was ever made. My, she is always wanted one. It was a 1962 Thunderbird. And every time I was growing up, every time we'd see one, as it got you know more on in the years, you'd see one less and less. But she'd always say, that's my dream car. I've always wanted to have one. So when I was a teenager, one day I came home from school and I found a white with red interior 1962 Thunderbird parked in our driveway. 
So my mom was so excited and I thought, oh, she's never going to let me drive that. Never, ever, ever. So a couple weeks later, she's like, do you want to take that to your part-time job? Yes. She's like, but don't take all your friends out in it and definitely do not go on the highway. So what's the first thing we do the following weekend? I pick up all of my friends and we go on the highway and we saw how fast it could go. And some of the best memories I have of my mom surround that car. It was an amazing thing. It was a memory that I always have. So my mom started getting sick, and she ended up passing away in 2012. So she sold the car, you know, when she started getting sick. And at the time, I was in college, and what college kid has room or money in their budget for an extra car, let alone a classic car that leaks oil? So I never paid attention to the VIN number. I never paid attention to who she sold it to. I always wished that I had. Um, but it was always kind of my dream from that point on is that I want to get my mom's car. I want to find my mom's car. I want a 62 Thunderbird that was totally on my bucket list. So about 10 years, I had totally forgotten about that. So when we came here to the first live event in 2021, um, we had done the scavenger hunt where we had walked around Avalon and Trace and Corinne had found stuff for us. Well, I was in a group with Chuck and Mike, and we were a group running around doing our scavenger hunt and I remember one of the stops was in front of the Tesla store and Mike was telling us that his dream was to own an electric car, a Tesla, and Chuck was talking about the Chuck wagon. And then I was telling for the first time in about a decade, I was telling Chuck and Mike my biggest bucket list item about my mom's 62 Thunderbird, how I wanted to find that car. I wanted to find one just like it. And I remember Chuck and Mike said to me, well, if that's the biggest item on your bucket list, what is stopping you? So I had always thought about a bucket list as being this kind of like not tangible, this kind of thing that was far off in the future. I'd never thought about like, I could do it now. Like I could do it right now. And I never thought about that. And I always thought, well, what is stopping me? I thought about that a long time after we left Alpharetta that first year. And I thought, well, you know, I've gotten married. I'm living in like my like big girl house, like I own a company. I have like all of these accomplishments, but I haven't started on anything that's on my proverbial bucket list. I feel like as soon as I got married and as soon as I had Alex and as soon as I got the company, it's always like, well, no, I can't do that. No, I can't go there. No, I can't take time off. So I got back from Alpharetta and I looked online and there were a couple false starts, but about six months later, I found the perfect car. It was absolutely identical to the car that my mom had, except for it had blue interior, which I like better. Um, and so I, I went and I looked at it and I showed my husband and he's like, well, if you want to go look at it and you like it, I'll get it for your birthday. So I, you know, work and in, in live in Cleveland. So one day, the next day after work, I drove, I left Cleveland right after work, drove all the way up to Milwaukee, looked at this car, and it was like stepping into a house with a realtor. And you know that that's the house that you can live in. You feel like you're home. I sat down in it and tried not to get really excited. I was sitting at the steering wheel, and uh, the salesman walked away, and I FaceTimed Matt and Alex. And Matt's like, so do you like it as much as you thought you would? And I said, yes. And I hear Alex in the background, well, if you like it, just buy it. We'll buy it for you, mom. So we bought the car and it came home to Cleveland and it got me really thinking, you know, what was holding me back? I feel like there's always something that holds us back. Um, you know, if not now, when? So that one bucket list item, based off of what happened to me during my first you know, time here at the live event, has led to another bucket list item. 
Um, I had always wanted to be published for something other than water treatment. So I um, wrote an article kind of about this whole experience. And I have uh, my stepdad found a picture of my mom's car. And then I have a picture of my car. And I'm published in the Thunderbird Collector's Magazine. And then my other bucket list item is I would like to actually do a real TED Talk. So then that kind of all transpired. So now I'm like maybe crossing a third thing off the list. So I think that my biggest thing is, is I hope that my son will be able to make memories with me with my car, just like I did with my mom. That I'm very excited for. And I guess my question to you is, is that if you have not already started on your bucket list, then what's stopping you? Because there's no time like right now. Nation, the article that Jill mentioned in her TED Talk, we have on our show notes page. So if you would like to read that, we have that information. Of course, we also have the information if you would like to nominate Jill to the TED stage. We'll have all of that as well. Next up is Tom Hardy. And Tom Hardy was selected from his group. And I'm sure glad he was because you are going to enjoy this TED Talk. Hello, everybody. How's everyone doing today? At a show of hands, I'm going to ask a question, but I'm going to define the question. I'm looking for people that have volunteered, um, but not money, but your time. So who in this room has volunteered their time? Okay. Seems like a lot of people. Who would like to volunteer their time that may not have? Excellent. So some of you may have thought about volunteering. Some of you may not have. Some of you may not even know where to start if you have. In 2013, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Um, it was a very hard thing that I went through. I was married three years at that time. Uh, my wife saw me through all of that. I lost a lot of weight. I was down to 145 pounds. I'm 190 today. It doesn't show, but you know, it's there. Um, I was seeing lots of different doctors, visiting in New Jersey at the time where I live. I uh, got to a point where the doctors that were seeing me said, we can't help you anymore. I was in a lot of pain. I was actually out of work for six months on the couch because I couldn't move. Uh, eventually, I transferred to another system, and the ball started rolling. Um, things, I might, at a point, I actually got uh, diverted. I have an ostomy. And the ostomy took away all the pain because everything below that area was causing my issues. And I got healthy, and I started to gain weight again. Two things great came out of that time. I got my cat, Meowser. She's my best buddy to this day. She follows me everywhere like a dog. I also got my daughter, Abigail. And my wife, through thick or thin, uh, we got through our marriage at that time. Out of all of that, the biggest thing I took away was I wanted to help people that have to go through the things that I went through. I got some help along the way, my wife, my cat, some doctors, some nurses, but I didn't feel like I was getting the help um, whether it wasn't available or I wasn't seeking the right people, that I wanted to help other people that were going through what I was, went through. be honest with you, to this day, I have not done that. However, it did get me on the road to figure out how to help. I started to volunteer. 2019, I got involved in a small group in my neighborhood. Uh, Arielle Hopkins uh, passed away at the age of six. Um, this year, she would have been 13. But from that sad moment, her father and her, and her mother 
uh, created this organization and they do events every single year. One's Ariel Hopkins Day, which actually just passed this past weekend. Um, it's a fun day, we raise a lot of money. Um, there's events, music, food. Uh, this year we raised the smallest amount, $10,000 in one day, in a rainy, wet, horrible day. But everyone came out and supported it for the seventh year in a row. With, in, that was 2019, in 2020, I then got involved in the Sons of the American Legion in my town. I was not military, but my grandfather was. As a result, I was able to join the Sons of the American Legion um, and help out with that. So we raised funds, we help out military families, uh, current and active and past, and give out to them as much as we possibly can. And within a year of being there, I joined uh, the board as the adjutant, and I help out there. So monthly we meet and we do fun and interesting activities. We're actually in the process of planning a pig roast right now. Now we come to 2020. Things are starting to roll. I'm starting to volunteer more things. I went to the Association of Water Treater Convention that year, and I said, I'm going to get involved in something else. So I joined the Regs and Legs Committee, or Legs and Regs Committee. And I was participating in that. About a year in, I was asked if I can kind of co-chair with the current chair. And I said, well, let me see, I'm kind of busy. And I got convinced to join. I'm glad I did. Um, I've learned a lot in this time. Next year, I'll, hope, I'll be planning to take over the chair of that committee. And I've been, and the whole intent of that committee is to give back to the membership of the, of the uh, AWT and help them with understanding the regulations and legislation in our environments. So at this point, it was 43 years before I invested in my first volunteer work. It took me 43 years and a life-changing event to make me realize I can help. I've gained a lot from all the help I've given, and I can do more. In the four years, only four years I've done stuff, I implore you to not wait for some life-changing event to involve yourself to help others. It's not hard. You don't have to do something big. I still haven't done the thing that I intended to do, but I'm working my way towards it. It's getting easier and easier as I go. So just open your hearts, Find something in your local community, whether it's an hour, couple hours a week. Just get out there and volunteer some of your time. It'll come back to you tenfold, and the faces and the changes that you'll make will be amazing. Thank you. Tom was one of the people that told me that he probably would not have ever have done a TED Talk if he were not assigned it. And he was not particularly overwhelmed or happy about when I gave this assignment, but he was sure glad he did it when it was all done. So Tom, thank you for sharing that with me. That's the whole point of the Rising Tide Mastermind. We do things that other people probably do not, and we do that to move ourselves closer to being better at whatever it is. And this particular time, it was public speaking. And uh, that was the whole point of this assignment. So thank you for sharing that with me, Tom. Next up is Brett Glenna. My talk is about colors. Give me a little leeway to explain as we go down this story together. Close your eyes and imagine the following. Seven-year-old boy sitting at the kitchen table eating his dinner. Next to him is his three-year-old daughter in a high-top chair doing the same. In front of them is their parents in an argument. 
they don't know what they were talking about. Adult conversations were kind of beyond their, their scope of understanding, only that this fight was a little bit worse than many in the past. At one point, the mother threw a plate of food up in the air, hitting the ceiling. And as one would suspect, food stuck to the ceiling as the plate returned back down to earth. When it did, it hit the father in the head, breaking the plate and spilling the food all over him. Immediately, the fight became louder and more aggressive and only calmed down when the kids became louder than the parents. This was 1972. It was a year of goldenrod shag carpeting and avocado green appliances, for those of you old enough to remember that. Like those two colors, these colors also represented the parents. The mother was goldenrod and the father was avocado green. In fact, the mother had grown up in a primarily in a goldenrod family and the father was strictly an avocado green. The two children were much too young to understand the nuances of different colors and their parents were much different in this regard. Typically growing up in a goldenrod house, you were taught goldenrod was the better color. Typically speaking, if you grew up in avocado green, you were taught the nuances of that color, strictly that color. It wasn't very often that you had the two colors mixing, but in this case there was. Typically, in a, they would teach that the other color was ugly and didn't fit their world. Both sides arguing that their color was better. A year later, the parents divorced. Both children were split. The daughter went with the mother, and the son went with the father. The son was now primarily in an avocado green household where he learned that that color was really the best color. He didn't question his father. He took it at face value that this is the way the world had to work. He hung out with avocado green kids, had avocado friends, and life was fine. As this young boy became a young adult, he had a good friend one night ask him, what color are you? And the boy exclaimed, I'm avocado green. It's the correct color. This friend of his asked a series of questions. And in these questions, the good friend looked at him and said, you're not avocado green. You're chartreuse. The boy was stunned. This violated everything he had been taught growing up. This kind of disrupted his world. Now he didn't seem to fit in. He felt like he was coming out of the closet. Chartreuse, a little strange. He didn't feel superior being chartreuse. He understood it was a byproduct of his parents, that he was taught from both goldenrod and avocado green. As with most kids out there, they were growing up in avocado green or chartreuse to believe their color was best. It's pretty rare when you see a family mixing the two colors together. Typically, avocado green and goldenrod don't want to live together. In fact, in America, you have pockets where you have green and avocado. They don't want to live next to each other because they don't like each other's color. Our nation is built on a separation of colors. The media proves this. Print, radio, video. They talk about their individual colors and the separation of them. The young man finds that he's having difficulty fitting in. Where is a group dedicated to chartreuse? As he gets older, he realizes there's power in money in the divide between these two colors. They make it so horrific that choosing the other color causes shame and potentially the loss of friends and family. This individual now, this young man, realizes there is many shades of avocado green and goldenrod as there are colors on the rest of the palette. Yet each color stands together in their group and points at the other color and says, our color's better. 
As the young man gets older, he finds himself with the ability to travel overseas. He comes in and sees all these wonderful colors. Not one avocado green or goldenrod. A myriad of, of different colors. Yet they suffer from the same flaw as the avocado green and the, and the goldenrod. They feel their color is better. And they don't understand why we in our nation have strictly these two colors. They don't understand it. But again, they suffer from the same polarization as we do. It's just different over there. The funny thing about this is you don't have much of a choice. Where we land up under color has more to do with our background, our family, our friends. We truly don't know what it's like to understand the other side of the color. It's not based on a well-researched position. You're just grown up with these colors. As you can likely tell now, I'm not really talking about colors. I'm talking about the political landscape of our country. The reason I chose to use color as a metaphor was two reasons. One was to make you look at this for a different vision when you take the word politics out of it. The second reason was to disarm people because when they hear politics, they automatically start encamping, they start shutting down their ears. So that was the reason we use colors. As you can tell, the little boy in the story is me and the experiences I had. Although my parents' divorce had nothing to do with their various colors, it did show the true divide between the two colors. Seeing each position as better, we are not going to find the answer through the media. The media has way too much to risk to start creating independent thought. We have to do it by talking to each other and not talking for the purpose of the debate. Debate is only to convince the other side that your color is better. We need to have these conversations to understand their position for our benefit, not even theirs. We need to do this to become a better society. We can do better. We must do better. Now, Brett was also somebody that shared with me they would have never have done something like this if it were not assigned within the mastermind. And aren't we all glad that he wrote this? What imagery he used. That was just amazing. I encouraged Brett not to end his talk there, to make sure that he does something else with it. Maybe it becomes a short story. I was just fascinated by how he used imagery. Uh, so if you would like to nominate Brett, and you can nominate all these people, by all means, we're going to have that information on our show notes page. And our last TED Talk is Connor Hanrahan. And Nation, Connor is just so much fun. He, uh, You're going to hear about another company that he owns, and I'll tell you a little bit about that after the TED Talk. So here's Connor. Thank you, guys. Uh, it's an honor to be here. It's been a really fun day. Thank you, Trace. My name is Connor. I'm a water engineer, and I'm a co-founder of Mullet Party, which we all got a little taste of last night. Uh, you guys were awesome. You guys were amazing. I had no doubt that this group would get it, because you guys are so fun. And Reed, as usual, you killed it. You're my favorite. Four years ago, I started Mullet Party with my younger brother. And since then, we get asked uh, the same questions, especially by our parents. What are you thinking? What's the point? You have a real job now. Can you please stop? <laughs> we, we, we get asked this question, why, all the time. 
why mullets? Why are you doing this? And our answer is typically something along the fashion of, uh, we like throwing good parties and you just got to experience it, right? Like it's goofy, but in the room, it's a blast. Uh, but when we, if I really dig into it, the real reason I think relies on some basic truths that we very deeply believe in, and there's three of these, right? The first one is that the universe, the world we're in is so strange, so enormously wondrous that I think it's our responsibility to be playful. The second one is that a rigid sense of self or ego, I think is the biggest impediment against having a good time, throwing a great party and living a good life. So our goal is to have fun. And the last one is that we think that human potential is so limitless and amazing, but that we have to believe that, right? And we have to be committed to working together. So I want to take you on a short journey here. Since we're all in the water field, it's a journey of some fish-related parables, puns, and analogies. Please bear with me. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. So. The first one, I credit to David Foster Wallace, from whom I first heard it. The parable goes, there are two young fish swimming along. An older fish swims up from the opposite direction. The older fish says, good morning, boys. How's the water? Young fish continue swimming in silence, look at each other quizzically, and say, dude, what the hell is water? The point of the metaphor, the parable, in David Foster Wallace's words is that the things that are the most ubiquitous, that we are most closely surrounded by, can be the most difficult to see and the hardest to discuss. We are so close to them. But what it further begs is the question, what is our water? What are we swimming in here in this room, right? And the longer you sit with that question, the weirder that it becomes, right? But for starters, we're standing on a rock about 8,000 miles wide, right? And filled with liquid magma. Where we stand right now, we're moving about 1,000 miles per hour around the rock, and we're revolving around the sun even faster than that, along with seven other planets. Rest in peace, Pluto. <laughs> Sorry, buddy, didn't make it. These eight planets and our solar system are sitting in kind of the offside of the Milky Way galaxy, and the Milky Way galaxy, nowhere near the center of the universe, right, which is expanding out in every direction into apparent nothingness. What do we do with that, right? How do we sit with that? That's so strange. To put it shortly, and maybe you've heard this, we're like ghosts driving these meat-covered skeletons made of stardust and we are riding a rock that is floating through space. And when I think about that, I feel so paradoxically charged, so empowered by that, right? That we're the pioneers, that we're looking out into space as true explorers, and that we are sailing in a sea of uncertainty, and there is so much opportunity for adventure and for play if we're committed to those. And I think that the more that we understand what a weird waters we're wading in, it gives us the opportunity to swim in different directions. And that, to me, is what the mullets have been and can be, is a very odd rudder or dorsal fin on top of our heads that guides us in maybe an unpredictable pattern something new. So we go back to our fish. 
are two fish swimming along. They're joined by a group of other small fish. One looks to the other and says, oh no, we're in school. <laughs> the school of fish, the school, the fish are now in a school of fish, right? And what do they do? They learn about all of the important things, water, water treatment, where water comes from, LSI calculations, steam tables, all the important things to learn in school. But what they also do is they develop their tribal identities as young fish, and they develop in their little fish cliques, right? They have the jock fish, and the theater fish, and the nerd fish, and the goth fish. And this is so important because it gives them a sense of purpose, and it gives them a sense of place, and it gives them confidence, and it gives them courage, right? But what we don't do with these young fish, and what I don't think we do enough with young people, is to tell them that, yes, that is important, but what's more important is to grow out of that and to develop a wider embrace of what it means to be human and to share this world. And more than that, that this us versus them mentality and clickiness is reserved only for adolescent fish and summer camp games, but that the real world is not binary and that when we get stuck in this us versus them. In fact, if we go to a party where people are on opposite sides of the room because they have their imagined differences separating them, instead of standing in the middle and dancing together, it stinks. And that's what the goal, the hope of the mullet is, is that it's this weirdness that unites us and shows us that we're not really that different. We're these meat-covered skeletons, and that this space in between that we can be drawn together that that's where the magic really happens. So finally, our two fish swimming along, they're on their way to work now, they share the same commute on the water airstream, swimming along and wham, they run into a wall. Oh, damn, says a fish. <laughs> They've run into a newly constructed dam. Last, last fish joke, I promise. Uh, They've run into a dam and they stare up at this behemoth of cement standing before them, this obstacle in their path, but they're reminded of the words of Ryan Holiday, that the obstacle in the path becomes our path, that our obstacles are opportunities for growth. And I think of this when I look at all of the obstacles that we have looming before us, water scarcity in the Southwest amongst them, these tremendous, huge, challenges that we face as humans. And I think the great misery or the amazing opportunity, depending how we choose to look at it, is that the better we get, the more advanced we get, the more challenging and luminous our obstacles become, right? But there's an opportunity there. When I think that we developed manned spaceflight and within 66 years landed men on the moon, I think of our opportunity when we work together, when we put aside divisiveness and jockeying for position, I think about the opportunity of what we could become. We can be sustainable. We could, in my greatest dreams, move towards a type one civilization on the Kardashev scale, where we are fully utilizing all of the energy and resources available on our planet to become a sustainable and habitable place, right? And then from there, moving out into the cosmos and exploring, right? But I think that we do not have the daily reminders that the things that unite us are more important than the ones that divide us. And it is so easy to get swept along with the normal current of how things are going. 
And so our hope, our real hope of why we started Mullet Party and why we love it is that we want it to be a reminder that the world, the universe is very strange, but that it's playful. That our ideas of who we are are important, but not more important than finding ways to work together. And finally, that we are capable of so much. We are capable of incredible things if we're willing to believe and work together and to have fun. So thank you. And thanks for a great mullet party last night. <laughs>
And trust me, I am using a lot of things that I have learned from the TED Talks book to make sure that I deliver my message very clearly. And in the book, he gives a definition of what a TED Talk is, and I think it is just fantastic. And a TED Talk is just simply, you have an idea, you have a vision of what that idea looks like in your head, and you are now sharing that and putting that image in everybody else's head. If you can just envision whatever's in your head going in everybody else's head and everybody's brainwaves are getting synced up, that's just an incredible image for me. And that's what I try to do every time I come to this mic, every time I speak, and especially as I'm giving a keynote address. So it's my hope that you're going to be at the International Water Conference November 12th through 16th. So I have some friendly faces out there in the audience And I will tell you that this assignment helped me prepare for that. This book helped me prepare for that. And so many of the Mastermind members have given me feedback on how I should go about delivering the message for this keynote. Now, one of my goals is to become a better speaker each and every time that I speak. And I'm pretty proud of myself if you ever listened to episode one of this podcast and what the podcast sounds like now. And really all that proves is practice makes things better and information while you're practicing like this book, TED Talks by Chris Anderson, allows me to use techniques that other people have taught me to become better. So I'm going to challenge each one of you in the Scaling Up Nation to get out there and speak. What is a topic that you know more than most people about? And what is a forum that you can share that information with? Now, call it a TED Talk if you like, or just call it sharing information with other people. I think you have an obligation. We all have this obligation that as we figure stuff out, we can make things better for other people by sharing what we figured out. So that's my challenge to all of you out there in the Scaling Up Nation is what do you know and how are you going to share it? Now, a couple of events that are coming up. I just mentioned the International Water Conference, November 12th through 16th in San Antonio, Texas. We're going to have information about that on our events page. And the other item that I will mention, the other convention that I will mention is the Association of Water Technologies Annual Convention and Expo. That's taking place October 4th through 7th in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Now, I've got a paper that I'm delivering there, so I'm going to be using the information that I've learned from the book and also through this activity to make sure that I deliver a clear and concise paper. But this is one of the conventions that I go to and meet so many of all of you. So if you are a member of the Scaling Up Nation, I would love it if you came up to me and uh, let me know that. And whatever you want to let me know about this podcast, I love to hear that. I can't tell you how many shows have been planned at 
the AWT conference because a member came up and told me about an idea that they had. So please make sure you come up and see me, whether you're at the AWT or the IWC, the International Water Conference. I love meeting people. I love re-meeting people and reconnecting with people. So somebody that also loves that very thing, and he's going to be at both of these shows, is James McDonald. And of course, James is making us better each and every week by challenging us to learn a little bit more about the chemistries that we use each and every day. So here's a brand new installment of Periodic Water Table with James. Hello and welcome to the Periodic Water Table with James, where we think and learn about water chemistry drop by drop. Please use your week to search online, ask your colleagues, or even pick up a book to learn more about each week's periodic water table topic. If you do, at the end of the year, you'll be 52 water chemistry smarter. So let's raise the water table of knowledge together and get started. Today's topic is EDTA, or ethylene diamine tetracetic acid. Some of these words are fun to say and impress your family and friends. But back to the subject at hand, EDTA. What is it used for? What's its chemical formula? What does EDTA typically react with? It's called a chelant, but what does the word chelant mean? What are the advantages of using EDTA in a boiler water system? What are some warnings and precautions with using EDTA in a boiler system? What are the dangers of overfeeding EDTA? What about underfeeding? Does EDTA react stoichiometrically with cations? What does this mean? Is EDTA synergistic with any other water treatment chemistries such as polymers and phosphates? How do you test for EDTA? What do the phrases free keelant, combined keelant, and total keelant mean? Are there other keelant alternatives to EDTA? Do you use any treatment products that contain EDTA? Remember, knowledge is power, and taking the time to learn more about water chemistry each week will help make you a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to post what you learn to social media and tag it with hashtag watertable23 and hashtag scalinguph2o. I look forward to learning more from you. Thank you, James, and thank you, Scaling Up Nation. We will have a brand new episode for you next Friday. Until then, take care of each other and have a great week, folks.